I want to explore with you this evening and the whole weekend, uh, hopefully a kind of relational fun that begins by engaging in some intellectual fun, grasping some things about the most relational person in the universe, and that's God. Now, in order to get where we're going tonight, I want to begin by sharing with you that when I was a little boy, I had a recurring dream over and over and over again. I don't know if it happened 50 times or 100 times, but I had this one dream over and over again. And in my dream, I would see myself standing on the sand with the waves of the ocean breaking at my feet. And as I would stand there looking out into the water, suddenly out of nowhere, a dolphin would come up out of the water and under my little boy legs and I'd grab the dorsal fin and out to sea we would go, swimming all through the ocean diving deep and coming up high and then finally coming up out of the ocean through city streets and up stairways and into grocery stores and just waving to people as I went by, having a great time. Over and over again, I had that dream as a little boy because I had an inordinate level of love for dolphins for some reason. Fast forward about 20 years and I found myself on a boat looking out over the still sea water, the people telling me, I know you want to see dolphins, Ty, but it's rare, almost never happens. And suddenly, out of nowhere, my little girl, she says, Daddy, look! And all of us look in one direction. And we just see this dark fin up and it's gone. I immediately dive in the water and begin swimming toward the fin that we saw while my wife is shouting, what if it's a shark? (laughs) And all I can think in my mind is, it's worth the risk. And as I keep swimming in that direction, there's nothing, nothing, nothing. And then suddenly out of nowhere, I go down again And right in front of me, I begin to count one, two, three, four, five, six dolphins. So I come up out of the water and I yell to my family and they all jump in and start swimming in that direction. Cameras, underwater cameras going under the water. We're all moving toward these dolphins and finally we get tired and they all start going back, but I just can't go back. Because I've gone under again and I'm looking and I begin to count and they've gone deep now. And the water is crystal clear. And they're swimming in one direction. And I'm swimming directly over them. And they come up all around me. And I'm swimming with the dolphins along the seashore, sea sea line, sea, sea, whatever. (laughs) And as I'm swimming, I get tired. And I think, I got to go back. I come up, I look, I can't see the boat anymore because the water is heaving, starting to rain. But I just keep swimming as long as I can and finally I turn around to go back. I kid you not, when I turn around and begin swimming back, all of those dolphins, I don't know how many of them were, 50, 60, all those dolphins circled around as if to say, "Uh, we're going this way. 
where are you going? We're going this way. So I turn around and I start swimming with them again. And I can't take it after a while and I turn around and I go back. And they let me go back. And that was my adult experience with dolphins. Now you're going to think I'm lying when I tell you this next part. Because this is unbelievable. A few years later I find myself on the Amazon River. And I have heard that there are pink dolphins freshwater dolphins in the Amazon. And we're out on this little boat with a motorcycle engine, and the guy who's grown up there tells me, I've never seen them, but we know they're here. And as we're out with this little boat, I just offer up a simple prayer. God, that would be really cool if I could see pink dolphins A half hour goes by, an hour goes by, we're heading to our destination. Finally, he stops the boat, we pull out our sandwiches, we start eating, and the pink dolphins come up around the boat. I'm sharing this with you this evening because the premise of the message that I want to share with you right now is that I believe that reality is fundamentally social. That reality is fundamentally social. One of two things is true. Either we are highly evolved animals and the highest law of our existence is self-preservation. Either we are merely biological creatures and there's nothing more to us than that. Or we are fundamentally social creatures and the highest law of our existence is love. Now, I'm going to build a case this evening for the idea that I believe that reality is fundamentally social and I'm going to show you why. The message this evening is titled Ancient Love and so we're going to go back, 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 as far back as we can go in our imaginations and try to grasp what's going on in the ancient eternal past. Now we're going to use the Bible as our textbook. And so here's a very fascinating verse. I hope everybody toward the back can see that. It's kind of a small screen, but I'm using big type here. So hopefully you can read this. This is from Psalm 90 and verse 2. And uh, by the way, most of the Psalms were written by David. This one was written, it's the only Psalm written by Moses. So Moses is writing a song about God. And Moses is not only writing a song about God, he's writing a song that he express, is expressing himself to God. So the, the words are directed to God, and he says, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay, this is a very fascinating concept. I want you to notice two things in the text. Number one, notice the word before. The word before. This word is fascinating because it shows up again and again and again in the Bible. Over and over again, and I'll show you a few more examples in a moment, over and over again we have this idea that there is creation, that includes you and me and dolphins and everything else, that is material, all of material creation. There is creation, and then, according to Scripture, there is this infinite before. 
It's difficult for our minds to grasp what it would mean for a being to exist forever and ever in eternity past, but that's the idea that we encounter in Scripture, that God is the first cause and that God himself is uncaused. That God is creator, but he wasn't created. He never came into existence, but has always existed. Now, we can't grasp what that means. The hard drive in our brains begins to wobble and smoke probably would come out of our ears if we thought about it too long. We don't know what it means to have always existed, but this is the idea. Let's just, let's just roll with it, though. Let's just see what kind of picture forms, and we can decide whether it makes sense or not, whether or not we believe it or not. So, so the word before in this text is telling us before the mountains were brought forth, before you had ever formed the earth or, or the sea. In other words, before what? Before creation. Before creation. And then it says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What does this mean, from everlasting to everlasting? Sometime in the infinite before, there is what we might call eternity past, and then what we might call eternity future. The scripture is calling this from everlasting, pointing in one direction in reality, to everlasting, so, so, so we have two directions that we're called upon to think. We're called upon to think into the infinite future. Now, this is interesting because according to the biblical testimony, eternity future is something that you and I can occupy. You, you and I literally could, if we so choose, live from this point forward forever. But we all had a point of beginning, a point of origin, and that is creation. Creation corporately is a race, but each of us has a beginning as well. Everyone has a birth date, right? So with your imagination, just go back as far as you can in incremental steps and just, just see where you end up. For example, each one of us was born at a particular time, which means that before that point, you didn't exist, right? And, and there was a point when your mom didn't exist. If you go back a little further, there was a point at which your, your father didn't exist. You, you could go back before, in fact, my wife Sue and I, we visited a toy store in London that has been in continuous operation longer than the United States has existed. A toy store passed on from generation to generation Continuous operation longer than our very nation has existed. So you could go back far enough and you could be face-to-face historically with the reality of no such thing as the United States of America, right? You could go back further than that and you could, you could find yourself at a place in history where there is no London. Are you following the reasoning? You could keep going back covering the historical ground of ancient empires. Before Rome, there was Greece, and before Greece, there was Media Persia, and before Persia, there was Babylon, and you could just keep going back farther and farther, just erasing swaths of history, human beings never having existed in the past before any given point. And then according to the biblical record, you could come all the way back to to the very first man and the first woman, 
The Bible calls them Adam and Eve. And then all you need to do in your imagination is go back one day before they were created and there's not a solitary human being anywhere in the universe. But then if you go back a little bit further, the Bible tells us that there's an order of beings that predate the human race. According to Job chapter 38, when planet Earth was created and human beings were created, there's a category of beings that are symbolically called the stars of God and a category of beings called the sons of God who shouted for joy at the creation of planet Earth and the human race. So if they're shouting for joy at our creation, chronologically they predate our existence, right? If they're witnessing the event, they're there before we're there. But the Bible also tells us that these beings called angels are created beings. In fact, the Bible specifically tells us that there was one angel that was created before any of the others, and so his name was Lucifer, which means son of the dawn, or son of the morning, or son of the dawn of creation. So Lucifer is the first created angel. And then, according to Ezekiel 28, this Lucifer is the template angel. He's called the seal of perfection in Ezekiel 28. So, so all the other angels are kind of patterned after this first created being called Lucifer. But the point is that Lucifer and the angels, they're created beings as well. They're contingent creatures, which means there was a point at which they were created, which means there was a point before which they had never existed. Are you still with me? So there are no humans. There are no angels. If you go back far enough, you have two categories. You have the creator and the created. And by very definition, everything created had a point of beginning, which means there is a point you could go back to before which they didn't exist. And then we are face to face with what we're calling eternity past. A region of reality that is described in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, again using the word before, by him, this is speaking of God, by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, and he is, there's our word again, he is before all things, and in him all things consist or cohere or hold together. In other words, the idea is if he steps back one little baby step from holding the whole thing together in its simultaneous operation, it all goes into chaos and disintegrates. So he's the creator, but he's also, according to this text, he's the sustainer of the order that keeps everything operating the way it operates. So, so he's before everything. Then again, in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, I'm just throwing this out there, not that we can comprehend it, but this is just some of the stuff the Bible tells us. It says that there was a time before time began. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, what is time? Time is linear existence, right? 
It involves succession. One day follows another. One moment follows another. And reality accumulates behind time. History accumulates behind... You have a history. I have a history. And the history that you have, the history that I have, is all composed of experiences that happened linear in time. But according to this scripture, there was a time, could you even call it a time? I guess not, because it's before time began. So let's just say a non-time region of reality. A region of reality in which God alone exists, but there's no aging process going on. There's no entropy. There's no getting old. Nothing is on a downward spiral Everything is in a continual, growing, outgoing, expansive, life-giving mode, but not moving downward, no aging, no decay, a time before there was time, according to Scripture. And this is interesting because this time before there, were ti- before there was time, God has a title, and the title that God has in this eternity past, is the ancient of days. Now, the word ancient conjures up age in our minds. Isn't that right? So, on the basis of Scripture, would you say God is old? Yeah, that would be an understatement, wouldn't it? You would say ancient, God is old. But let me ask another question. Would you say God is elderly? No, God doesn't have his teeth in a jar by the bed, does he? He's not scooting on a scooter because he's not getting old. There's nothing. Is his hairline receding? Or think about it like this. Right now, if by some means God just chose to appear to you and me right now, would he look old or would he look young? I think if God appeared right now and he said, hey, hey, guess my age. I think we'd, just from what we see, I think we might say, I don't know, maybe 26? So, so God is old, God is ancient, God has always existed, God has always existed in eternity past, but God is not in the process of aging God is eternally young. In fact, I find this interesting. One of my favorite authors, anybody with a beard like that's got to say awesome stuff. This is George MacDonald. George MacDonald observed that God was, is, and ever shall be divinely childlike. Childhood belongs to the divine nature. So, So if you and I were to encounter God right now, Would he be elderly and austere and distant? Or would he be playful and young and happy? It's an interesting prospect, isn't it? Now, according to George MacDonald, childhood belongs to the divine nature. But you wouldn't say that God's immature, would you? You might say something like that God is... is eternally young and infinitely mature. Is it possible, do you know anyone like this? Is it possible for somebody to be mature and and intelligent and wise and childlike in innocence? 
Do you know anyone like that? Well, God would be the epitome of what youth would look like if we could meet God right now, he would look younger than George MacDonald. God is eternally young and infinitely mature. Or look at this from G.K. Uh, Chesterton said it this way. We have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we are. Do, do you feel the tension in that? The paradox? That God, the Father, is actually younger than you and I? Because the sin problem is what imposes decay and aging and entropy upon us? That we're aging under the influence of negative forces, not positive forces. That in fact, you were never supposed to get old. That the aging process itself is a problem that God is in the process of solving because God is looking forward to spending all of eternity with a bunch of 26-year-olds. Himself among them. So when we reason backwards in this eternity past, we find ourselves face-to-face with God and God alone. But here's the interesting thing. If you go back in time, back in your imagination, drawing upon the biblical data that we have at our disposal, if you go back far enough and you find yourself face-to-face with God and God alone, in the next second you realize there was never really a time when God was alone. Or let me say it this way. God has never experienced anything like social isolation except for one time that we're about to discover, that God has always been engaged in a social relationship of some kind, even before you and I existed and before angels existed. Well, how could that be? Well, the first time that we encounter God in the Bible is in verse 1, of course. You don't even have to turn there even if you haven't spent much time with the Bible at all, even if you've never read the Bible before, you have most likely heard somebody quote the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's chapter 1, verse 1 of the first book of the Bible. That's how the story opens. The story opens by telling us that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But, but here's the thing. When we read the word God... In that text, we're reading an English word that doesn't do justice to what's actually there. The text that it was, the the original text is Hebrew. And the word God in English is a very generic word. It's like the word human. I wouldn't come to you this evening and say, pleased to meet you, I'm human. Would I? No. What you're looking for is a name, not the generic designation So when it says in the beginning God, it's a name in the Hebrew. It's not a generic word like deity. It doesn't say in the beginning deity or in the beginning the divine or in the beginning the force. May the force be with you. It's nothing like that. It's a very specific God that is being introduced to us. And literally what it says in the Hebrew is in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. 
It's a name like Ty or Bob or Sue or John. It's a name. But there's a sense in which it's different than Bob or Sue or Ty because it is a plural noun, which is very unique. That would be like me introducing myself to you and saying, pleased to meet you, I'm Ty's. But I'm a single solitary individual, so the grammar doesn't work, does it? But God is introduced in a plural sense in the opening verse of the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim. It's a plural noun. And we know that the plurality is intended because in that same chapter, chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 1, in the beginning, Elohim, if you just let your eyes go down to verse 26, it says, then God said, and again, it's Elohim, let us make man in our image. Notice that when God speaks, he's speaking in terms of us and our. Let us, he doesn't say, I think I shall in my I think I shall make man in my image. It's let us make man in our image. So there's, there's a conversation occurring here. God is addressing someone. Now, he's not addressing human beings because they're the subject of the conversation. He's not addressing angels because angels don't create. Whoever is speaking to whomever share creative power. Let us create in our image. So the passage itself is indicating that Elohim, that God, in some sense is a plural being, a plurality of existence in some way. Now, this is fascinating because while it would not be legitimate for me to introduce myself to you and say, pleased to meet you, I'm Ties, because I'm a single solitary individual and therefore I must introduce myself to you with a singular name, Ty, right? There is a plural name that I bear in association with some others because Ty is married to a girl named Sue. And we have three children named Amber, Jason, and Leah. And collectively as a family unit, we bear the name, the plural name, Gibsons. So Elohim is kind of like God's family name. This is the name that is used in scripture to describe the fact that God is God, that God is one and yet more than one. So it's fascinating when we come, oh, don't know what happened there. Do I have control over that or do you guys have control over that? Not sure. There, I can do it. All right. So notice what the Bible says. You need to know what the context is here because this passage, listen carefully now, is God the Father doing the speaking. And he's speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, who's going to be born and come to this world as the Savior. All I want you to notice is the language that the Father uses to describe Jesus. Behold, the Father says, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul, what's that word? Delights. This is fascinating. This is God the Father saying of Jesus, the Messiah who's going to be born into this world, who 
existed before he came to this world according to the biblical testimony. And the father looks upon him and says, he's the one in whom my soul delights. Now just think about that for a moment. Is there anybody that you can say something like that about? Is there anybody in whom you delight? Someone that you just enjoy their company. You could drive 600 miles with them and watch them just lay over there slobbering half asleep. You don't even have to have a conversation with them, but the trip is better because they're there. Just someone in whom you delight. You enjoy their company. You're energized by them. If you're going to go on a walk, you'd rather go on a walk with them than without them. If you're going to have something to eat, you'd rather eat with them than without them. If you're going to celebrate, you want to celebrate with them, not without them. Is there anyone like that for you? Your goldfish doesn't count, your dog doesn't count, your cat doesn't count. A fellow human being, somebody who, who you delight in. Well, isn't that the best thing going on in the world? To actually like someone? I mean, really like them. Well, that's what we have described here. The Father is saying, the one that I'm sending to the world to save you I just want you to know he's the one in whom I take delight. I really like him. We're tight. We have a relationship. It's beautiful. And I'm parting with him for you. So this is fascinating. We have here scripture describing what the relationship is like between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, before this world began. We have another one here. This is from uh, Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. This is mind-blowing to me. This again is God the Father speaking through the prophet about Jesus. And he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my, and what's that word? My companion. I don't know what version you're familiar with. This is the New King James Version. The King James Version uses the word fellow. The NIV, I think, just says the one who is close to me. The idea here is that the father is describing his relationship with the son, and it is a social relationship, it's a friendship. It's a relationship that exists between them. They enjoy one another's company. John chapter 1 and verse 18 describes where Jesus was before he came to this world. Where was he before he came to this world? He was in the bosom of the Father, whatever that means. I understand that way back in the 1950s, 1940s, that it was common for men to refer to one another as bosom buddies. That doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for most guys today. I don't want any of my buddies anywhere near my bosom. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a very simple idea. It just means close friendship. That's all it means. And so when the scripture says that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, another version drops the word bosom out as a, as a metaphor, as a symbol, and says that Jesus was in closest intimacy with the Father before he came to this world. 
Now, this is so incredible. This is so beautiful. What this means is that God, essentially, is a social being. That God is a companion. That God is a friend. Jesus, in John 17, verse 24, is praying to the Father, and he says, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's that word before again. When we think of this infinite before, before creation, before humans came to exist, before angels existed, we have to ask ourselves, what was going on in all eternity past before creation, before we existed? Was God bored? Was he pacing the universe, twiddling his thumbs? What was God actually doing before we existed? Well, if you take the Bible seriously, the Bible says that God was loving, engaged in a beautiful love relationship before we ever existed. And as a result, Jesus goes on after saying, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now notice this, verse 25, John 17, 25. Jesus then turns his attention to what he desires for you and me. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And the world has known that you have sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it. Now notice this that the love with which you, Father, have loved me, the Son, Jesus, the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is profound. This is, this is Jesus describing what the whole plan of salvation is about, what the gospel is about. We oftentimes think of salvation in terms of getting out of trouble with God. We think of salvation as escaping hell and gaining heaven. But Jesus is describing something much more personal than that. Jesus is saying that, that God is wanting to save you and me out of something into something specific. He's wanting to save us out of sin into love. Into the restoration of love relationships between him and us and between all of us and one another. The whole point of the plan of salvation is so that you and I would be reincorporated into the very love that exists between God the Father and God the Son. Reality is fundamentally social. You are not merely a biological creature. Yes, you have a body, but you are not a body. You function within a body, and it's a very simple thing according to Scripture for God to give you a new body in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, when Jesus comes again, God's just going to give you a whole new model, like a Bugatti model, like a really awesome bod. You won't even have to work out for it. Just boom. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, God can give you a new body. But right now, God's after your heart. God's after your thinking process and your feeling process. God's after your relational process. Because reality is fundamentally social. 
the whole universe was created as a physical space for you and I to coexist and love one another. When the opening text of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you could translate that text and do no damage whatsoever to the intent of the text by saying, in the beginning, love created the heavens and the earth. Because 1 John 4.16 says God is love. God is love and love created the heavens and the earth. You and I exist because God is love. You and I exist in order to love. Our highest existence, our greatest joy and satisfaction, and our deepest sense of meaning comes from healthy, beautiful, positive relationships. The whole universe exists as a physical space for you and I to interact so that I can love you and you can love me and so that all of us collectively in loving one another can also love God. Boy, you can't see that text at all, can you? We'll just skip it. Can't even read that. This is Professor Millard J. Erickson and he essentially says in the quote that we can't read, he says, if reality is fundamentally physical, then that which binds reality together is electromagnetic. It's just physical. It's just matter. It's energy. But then he goes on and he says, but if reality is fundamentally relational, that which binds reality together is love. What I'm suggesting to you this evening is, number one, that God is a social unit of other-centered love, other-centered bliss. Apart from our existence, before our creation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always existed in eternity past. They weren't bored. They weren't pacing the universe, wondering what to do next. They were thoroughly enjoying one another's company. God is love in the most beautiful sense imaginable. God is a social unit of other-centered bliss. And God is an infinitely mature, eternally childlike friendship. God, when we finally come face-to-face with the creator of the universe, we're going to be looking into young eyes. We're going to be looking into the eyes of innocence. We're going to be face-to-face with the most beautiful being imaginable. And it's going to be a very youthful eternity future that we're going to experience. You won't have any back pain. That pain in your left knee, gone. There won't be any sagging flesh, no Botox, no need for any tucking or sucking or all that stuff that is being done. None of that will be necessary. You'll just be an awesome physical specimen of eternal youth looking into the eyes of a God who is eternally young himself. And finally, God is the epicenter of all self-giving passion. 
To know God is not merely to get out of trouble, to escape hell and to gain heaven. The plan of salvation is not about evading punishments and gaining rewards. The plan of salvation is about restoring in you and me the capacity for love. When I jumped in to the ocean and those dolphins surrounded me and we swam along the shoreline together, there was something that I can't quite put my finger on that was going on there. I knew that they knew I was there and I certainly was hyper-conscious of them. And I happen to believe that when it's all said and done, that when we get to the other side of all the pain and the suffering that we are so familiar with, that we're not only going to be enjoying one another's friendship and fellowship forever and ever, I think we're going to find ourselves in relationship to creation itself in such a beautiful way that there will be no fear or trepidation even between humans and animals. It's going to be a beautiful future and I hope that you are determined by the grace of God to be there. Thanks for your time tonight.